Good morning. It is good to be with you all. Uh, This morning, we're going to do what we've been doing all summer. We're going to continue in our Proverbs series, and we are going to look at what Proverbs says about money. Um, Some of you chuckled. I did not expect that. Um, But we all need it. Uh, We all use it. In my prior work, many of you know that I led a ministry working in Southern Africa, and I both gave money away and asked for money. Um, Before that, I worked in economic development, recruiting companies and starting companies here in central Pennsylvania. And with companies, you got to know how to talk about money. I didn't always love talking about money, but over time, I grew to understand that if I could talk with someone about money, I could talk to them about anything. If people were willing to talk to me about their bank ledgers and their cash flow and how they might not be able to make payroll, um, I could talk to them about anything. Uh, and I was found that I was often one of the few people in their lives that they could talk to about anything. But so often money is taboo, uh, which is maybe why some of you gave a nervous laughter when I said we were going to talk about money. Uh, Money in our culture is taboo, off limits, out of bounds. And I've been thinking about why. And I've come up with just four things, four possible things. There's probably more. There's there's definitely more. I only came up with four. Uh, But one is we compare ourselves to other people. And and money is idolized as as a measure of stature in our culture. Um, And and we compare ourselves to other people. Uh, There's this whole relative deprivation syndrome you can look up if you want. There's a whole social psychology and economic development policy where basically, essentially it's this. I didn't plan to say this, so I won't dwell on it very long because that gets dangerous, as you know. Um, but, But relative deprivation syndrome is essentially like in communities where people are basically the same, there's more contentment around money because you don't have many people who are far better off than you or far worse off than you. But a country like ours where we all know tons of people who are wealthier than us and tons of people who are below us economically, we have a, we have a greater angst about money. Uh, so we compare ourselves. 74% of Americans think that they're okay financially. So 74% of Americans, yet we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. Uh, another one could be shame, shame or embarrassment in a time where the world's history books tell us that we're probably, arguably, one of the most uh, wealthy uh, people groups, not just in the face of the world, but in all of human history. 40% of Americans can't meet an unexpected payment of $400. 40% of Americans can't meet an unexpected payment of $400 without selling something significant that will radically change their lives. So, so many of us are living paycheck to paycheck, living on the margins, pretending, keeping up with the Joneses. And there's shame and embarrassment that our lives aren't quite what they look like. So maybe that's it. Another another possibility is it's private. Uh, There's a woman, uh, some of you might have heard of her, uh, a woman named Emily Post. She was a famous etiquette columnist. And she wrote a riveting, best-selling book in 1922 And you might laugh at that, but it is truly, uh, has truly had an impact on the way we talk about money in American culture. 
Her book was called, you can buy it today for $2.99 on Kindle uh, if you want. I almost did last night and I decided I have too much to do right now, maybe later. But uh, in her best-selling uh, book, Etiquette in Society and Business and Politics and at Home, she encouraged people in her columns and in her book, she encouraged people to make money a private conversation that's not publicly discussed. And over the last 100 years, her, her instruction to us as a culture still resides. According to NBC, in one recent poll, polling over 2,000 men and women, money more than sex, children, or in-laws, money was the most common point of disagreement or conflict with couples. Money. Yet one of the highest signs of intimacy in any relationship is whether they can talk honestly about money. But money's private, right? And then last, maybe especially for Christians, we're taught, and it's, it's pervasive in our Christian context, that we are to be humble givers. Matthew 6, 3 through 4 says this, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So it's embedded in us that we shouldn't talk about our giving, and so if we can't talk about our giving, we can't talk about our money. But Proverbs is very clear, and it talks about it a lot. There are over 100 references to money, rich, poor, wealth, power, material, material things related, power related to money. Uh, it is pervasive. In God's word, Jesus talked about money all the time. So we have to let go of this myth that money is taboo. It might be taboo in America, but God roars and is pervasively talking about money. So we're going to do that this morning. Um, in your sermon notes, uh, we've got a blank sheet in your sermon notes, and I'm going to give you five big things. It's ambitious, but we're going to do it. I'm going to give you five big themes that emerge from my study of Proverbs um, over the last little while here. And, and, and there's five themes that, that look at, uh, that Proverbs um, addresses in money. And I put them in order by their prevalence, the things that emerged to me as the most common things. All five things were well represented, but they start from one to five in prevalence. So one being the most prevalent and then on down. But they're all well represented. And here's the first one. It's a short, simple truth that jumped out to me as I read it. Number one, God's counsel on money applies to everyone, everywhere, including you and me. God's counsel on money applies to everyone, everywhere, including you and me. Whether you know it or not, each of us is going to have to give an account before God about how we stewarded our money. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage later on in Proverbs near the end. I think it's 28. Uh, again, I didn't plan to say this, but I think it's in Proverbs 28. that says something like, um, even kings are going to be held accountable and treated as equal before the throne of God. Like there's, because there's always someone richer and poorer than you. So when you hear passages about the rich and the poor, in someone's eyes and in someone's context, someone looking at you is going to think of you as rich. And some of you, uh, they're going to look at you and they're going to think of you as poor. Rich and poor are social constructs, but God's word is true for all people everywhere. Every person everywhere, God's word is true, including for you and me. No one is off the hook. 
Because everyone has someone in their life that's richer than them and poorer than them, even kings. Proverbs 22.2 says it this way. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The Lord is the maker of them all. So as we enter this text, I want to encourage you, perhaps implore to you, to remember that God's word about money is true for all people everywhere, including you and me. We have to be careful that if God's truth is true everywhere for everyone, we have to remember that we're holding ourselves up before the throne of God and allowing God to test us according to his word, not some social construct in America about what it means to be a nice person or to be generous. Being better than your neighbor with your money is not what God's word says. It applies to all of us everywhere. So it is how do you think about money in light of what God has asked you to consider about money? What I mean is that there's fellow believers around the world who right now, today, and this week, are reading their Bibles, and they are wrestling through this passage as well. And if God's word is true, and not just through an American lens, um, we have to understand that there are people across everyone in the world's spectrum, economic spectrum, that are wrestling with this text. Um, how to be good stewards of their money if they only make a dollar? How do I be a good steward of that money? Right, it's true. If I'm a billionaire, how do I be a good steward of my money? How do I earn it honestly and justly? How do I wrestle with what it means to, to give generously and joyfully to the poor? God's word is true for all. It doesn't apply to only a certain tax bracket or social construct of what it means to be rich or poor in America. Because remember, all of us have someone that are wealthier than us and poorer than us in our lives. As I mentioned earlier, I, 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 uh, some of you know this, a lot of you know this. I talk about it a lot because 14 years of my life was doing this. I, I worked in uh, leading a ministry called Forgotten Voices. And in that work, I would um, have the good fortune or sometimes misfortune of, of being in the presence of a few times a year, a few events where there were quite a few millionaires and a couple of billionaires. And, and over the years, as I got to know these folks and, and uh, gained their trust often, because they chose not to give to Forgotten Voices and I became a safe person to talk to. Um, uh, as I got to know them, two things, two themes emerged from those gatherings. One, um, they, uh, they all didn't trust people. I mean, many of them didn't trust people because they had very few of them had good friends. Because where they lived, people knew that they had money uh, when they were approached and people sought them out to be friends with them, they always inevitably lended with a request for money. They never quite knew who to trust or what the intentions were of people who wanted to pursue them in friendship. And time after time, they were disappointed to realize that the people who were wanting to be their friends really wanted their money. And so they had very few friends. So they were wealthier in all the world's eyes, but they had very few friends. And there were few places where they could safely just and, and the second thing was that in those kinds of environments, unlike 
their regular lives where they're chased for their money. And those kinds of environments and those events, there were people that were far wealthier than them uh, and they were suddenly ignored. There were people that were wealthier than them and, and it was weird to them. It was disorienting to them that like this, in their daily lives, they're chased for their money. But here they're just like, oh, well, you're just Joe. But Tony over here, he's got money. I'm going to talk to him. So it was disorienting. So they both didn't have friends. And when they gathered with other people who had money, they realized anew that they didn't have as much as they thought they did. And that their identity needed to be found in something else. And who God is. But that doesn't, that, that doesn't just, those constraints don't just apply to the wealthy people. On the opposite end of the world's economic spectrum, I would spend time with, with women and widows um, in, around the world. And, and what was struck me about money and talking to them is I remember meeting this, this uh, group of women um, who were widows and um, some of them were former prostitutes. They were, they were believers in the faith. Their husbands had died and they, they felt forced into prostitution in order to survive and take care of their children. And as I got to know them and they learned a new skill like sewing through our ministry and our church partners, uh, their economic situation changed dramatically. They might be going from making a couple bucks a day being prostitutes to $5 a day uh, becoming seamstresses for a local school. And you might scoff at $5, but to go from $2 to $5 is a giant leap of economic proportion. And these people who were destitutes and poor in their, the, the eyes of their community when they were prostituting themselves suddenly became community leaders. And so their money was liberating in one sense, but in another sense, now they suddenly had the social pressure to provide for people in their community who lacked basic things like food and water and shelter. And at $5 a day, they were being forced and asked, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? In ways that they had never faced before. And they had to read their Bible differently and say, when God asks me to care for the poor, or when God asks me to steward my money wisely as a proclamation of the hope that I have in Jesus, not just for eternity, but here on earth, how does that apply to me? God's word is true for all people everywhere, including you and me. So that's number one. You can't read Proverbs and it's counsel on money without thinking about these two people groups, the world's rich and the world's poor. And in the eyes of others, in the eyes of our world, we fit in both categories. God's word is true for all people everywhere, including you and me. So that was number one. Number two is this. God's wisdom and understanding is greater than money. God's wisdom and understanding is greater than money and wealth. As much as we crave and seek money, Proverbs teaches, Proverbs teaches us that God's wisdom and understanding is greater than money or wealth of the world. Wisdom from God leads to wisdom for money. Applied wisdom related to money leads to deeper relationships with God. Proverbs' wisdom regarding money helps us to seek the glory of Christ and how we live out our lives. Having a relationship with God that yearns for more of him, not the things of this world, is pronounced throughout Proverbs. Seeking God's wisdom and understanding leads to spiritual riches. 
So why is this important? Our value is in who God says that we are. Our value is in who God says that we are. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't love God more because he gives me stuff. I love God because he is my Lord and my Savior and my King. And in him, I can trust with my everything. This is what Proverbs 16, 16 says. It says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The NIV says insight or insight from God instead of chosen. How much better to get wisdom than gold? Gold goes away, but wisdom remains and stands the test of time. I have met people who are content in the Lord and they had a lot and they are content in the Lord when they have lost everything. That is a sign of deep spiritual richness. Pursuing and getting wisdom and understanding from the Lord is worthy of our pursuit above the things of this world. Proverbs wants that for us. It's throughout the whole book. It's throughout the whole book. Proverbs wants us to know that wisdom and understanding of God is more valuable than money or wealth. But too often, friends, I don't know about you, but for me, too often I, I want security first. Like if I had a little bit more of this, God wants me to be more stable. God wants me to be ready. God wants me to be a full, ready, equipped vessel, and then I will obey. I'm not ready yet, God. I know that you want to give me more time to get ready and prepare. I need more room. I need more this. I need more that. And then I will obey. I need security first. And then I will obey. I'm, I, I, I want to obey God. But I just need this first. And I know that you want me to be happy. I know that you want me to have pleasure and, and, and there's just something missing. And if I could fill that missing thing, then I will be ready to just really truly live out my calling. But, 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 but that's, that's not what God says. How much better to get wisdom than gold? Are you content with the Lord if you lost everything? Are you suddenly discontent from God and unneeding of God if you were given everything? Remember, God's wisdom on money applies to everyone. Everyone always will have people wealthier than them and poorer than them in their lives. God wants us to pursue him first. God's wisdom in Proverbs shows us that we are to pursue his wisdom first and in doing so, we will become spiritually rich even if the world's material wealth never comes. Pursuing God's wisdom is understanding as we seek to glorify God. But how can we apply this wisdom about money? Sorry, how we apply this wisdom of money demonstrates the faith we have in God to trust his ways, not our own. 
And for those who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, how we steward our money proclaims to the world that we don't just view God as our Lord and our Savior for eternity, but here on earth too. It's easy to come to church on a Sunday morning and be around people like you and me and, and, and say, man, isn't God good? We are going to be in eternity forever. And then go out and live like the world because no one's watching and no one's asking because money's private. Are we seeking God's wisdom and understanding above all else? These last three give us instruction about the wisdom about money. So if, if, if wisdom, and I think they're prevalently displayed like this in Proverbs, that wisdom and understanding of God is greater than wealth, we need to remember that because that's of the highest order. Because you always have people in your life who are richer than you and poorer than you. Don't fall into the trap. I keep saying this, but don't fall into the trap of playing the comparison game and keeping up with somebody as long as you're faster or, or, or better than the people in your life around giving. That's not the benchmark. God's word applies to you. The passage is about the rich apply to you. The passage is about the poor to apply to you. It's where you stand before God as a person who's desiring to seek God, his wisdom and his understanding above all else. But he does graciously give us insight around money. And we're gonna look at those as our last three. The first one of those last three is, so number three is give to the poor. Probably not shocked. Some of you might not be happy. But it's give to the poor. And in doing so, we proclaim, in doing so, we proclaim the hope that we have in Jesus as our Lord and eternity and here on earth. You see, uh, giving to the poor does three things, and we're going to look at them. There's three reasons why we need to give to the poor. There's probably more, but I, I came up with three. Three reasons why Proverbs says we need to give to the poor. The first one is we need to honor God. We need to honor God. Proverbs 15, uh, sorry, Proverbs uh, 21, 13 says it this way. It's a matter of being heard by God. It says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. If you, if you know the needs of the poor and you hear their cries, and you don't answer, you, and then you go to God, and you cry out, you will not be heard. That means you are seeking the ways of the world and not God. If you're willing to obey God and cling to him, are you willing to obey God and do what he says? If you want to be heard by God, if you want to honor God, you have to give to the poor. Or Proverbs 19.17 says it this way. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Don't you want to give things to God? It reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus, not just for eternity, but here on earth. Because folks, we are the poor. We were people here separated from God for eternity with nothing to offer him, nothing of worthiness to enter his kingdom and enter his presence. And he came for us. 
And he said, I see you separated from me, and I am coming for you, and I'm going to make you a son and daughter of me forever, while all the rights and inheritances afforded to you as a child of the king. You had nothing, and he gave you everything. Giving to the poor honors the Lord by saying, I know that I am submitted to your authority in my everything because without you, I have nothing. We honor the Lord when we give to the poor. The second reason why we need to give to the poor is very much related. We need to be humbled. We need to practice humility. The poor are our guides here on earth. They are not people to feel bad for. They are not people to be pitied. They are essential members of our society. And sometimes the poor are us. In fact, friends, always the poor are us. And always are the rich are us. We have to practice humility. We have to practice humility and giving to the poor does just that. Proverbs 15, 16 says this. Proverbs 15, 16 says this. Better is little is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So it's better, God's word says that it's better to have a little bit and have a fear of the Lord than to have a lot of treasure and no fear of the Lord. And I'm just going to fly through this one, but it's so important. Write down 1823. It's not on the screen, but it says, the poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. Entreaties are an honest or humble request. I don't know about you, when's the last time you asked for anything from anybody and said, I need help? It's a humbling thing to need something from other people. But as I've traveled with the poor both around the world and here locally, the poor have to do this every day. It's part of their normal. I need you and you need me and we have to do life together or we're not going to make it. It's a humble and earnest request in coming before you and saying, I need you in order to survive. And giving to the poor reminds us that we need the Lord every day to survive. We need a constant, regular humbling. We need to walk alongside the poor and let them show us how to live this way in total submission. I've probably told this story a dozen times, even just in this church over the years that I've been preaching here. But I had this friend, Sarah Fandulu. She's now deceased. She passed away a couple years ago. Uh, But this friend in Zambia, and she would say, Americans like to talk about trusting in God. But as Zambians, we have to because our day depends on it. The poor can show us the way about what it means to daily depend on God. Too often, I don't know about you, but for me, I need God as long as I need him. And then as soon as I'm good and stable and content and all is right in the world, my devotional time starts to slip. My giving gets a little less oomph. I'm just coasting. It's when I need the Lord that I'm reminded, oh, wait, all this is falling apart. I need to pray. 
But the poor humble us and show us daily how to live. And again, it's not just about being nice and doing a nice thing. But they show us the way. We need them at the table. And it's not our table. We need them at the table and it's not our table. 2811. 2811 tells us that the poor man has understanding. 2811 says that the poor man has understanding. So often when I've met the world's poor, both around the world and and locally, one of the most surprising prayers when I talk to our brothers and sisters who the world would consider poor, one of the most surprising things I've noticed about their prayers are their prayers are with us. They'll say things like, why are you all so miserable? Like what I'm asking God for, what I'm craving for, I don't even know what I'm eating today, and they don't. Yet this deep contentedness and trust that God will provide their meal that afternoon is so humbling. It made me cry dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times. Why are you all so miserable? They'd ask. Their prayers are with us that we would be content in who we have in Christ. Come what may. When I used to sit and listen to widows who had seven kids, and I'd come back later, and all seven kids were alive and thriving and content and growing in their faith in God and doing well in school and seemed perfectly healthy. I was so humbled to remember that I need to fill a notebook and ask endless questions about how this woman is doing this before I'd offer a solution about how she can make a better way for herself. The drive to thrive is embedded in her as an image bearer of God, called to be content in him, come what may. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but God doesn't love me less because I have more money than her. God is worthy of our everything and it's him we put our hope and our trust. And giving to the poor humbles us, reminds us that without Christ, we have nothing worthy of keeping. But what does it mean to be humble in our giving? I just want to say a word on that because this is a question I get a lot. What does it mean to be humble in our giving? Well, the verse that struck out to me is Proverbs 28, 15. Proverbs 28, 15. It says, like a roaring lion, listen to this one, like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. What that means is don't be overbearing. Give joyfully and generously. Don't lord over the gifts that you give out. Our our money is a gift from God that did not belong to you in the first place and he entrusts it to you to give to the poor, not just for them, but for you. As an act of demonstration and humility that without Christ you had nothing. And in Christ you have everything, so give it away. You were once poor in spirit and he rescued you and brought you in eternity to thrive with him in eternity and thrive here on earth. Don't lord over your gifts. Don't watch and wait 
for people to fail or disappoint you or not get it right or to make mistakes. Be faithful in your giving. Don't lord it over them. We have so much margin for error in our society uh, if we have a little bit of money. And we can make mistakes and fail. I don't know how, about, how many of you have had failings financially. And when I've made mistakes or something came up that I wasn't ready for and I was in trouble, uh, I had margin to hide those mistakes and I didn't need to tell anyone. And I could just fix them and move on. But if there's people in your life who you're helping and supporting and they keep making mistakes, remember that they don't have a margin in their life to make mistakes. Don't wait for them waiting to pounce to take your gift away. See, they didn't know what they're doing. They just keep screwing up. They don't deserve my money. They need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That's not what Proverbs says. Don't lord over them like a roaring lion or charging bear intimidating them that if they don't get this right, they're going to be cut off. If my fourth grader makes a mistake or gets a bad grade or something I don't say you can't eat, I lead the foster care initiative, right? Like somebody's going to be calling my house. The people engaged in the economically poor or the people in your life, the organizations in your life that you're giving to, when they make mistakes or things don't work out, remember that the systems of injustice and poverty are strong. People engaged in poverty and trying to break the cycles of poverty, uh, the systems are strong. They're doing nearly impossible things and God's not saying to you, your gift is gonna change all things, all time for this person and their understanding of money. Like a roaring lion or charging bear. Don't be like that. Be a giver of joyful and good gifts. Because our God gives good gifts joyfully. I remember, um, to illustrate that point, I remember once um, traveling along the road in uh, Zambia one day. And I was with some people. And it was pouring rain. And every time we got in the car to go to the next village, I had to like get out in the rain and close the door because the other people, the villagers that were traveling around with me, kept not closing the door. And I was getting soaked and it was muddy and because, you know, there's no roads. And, and I was getting so annoyed. And I said to my buddy at one stop, he's a Zambian guy who I trust and I love and he's always so honest with me and puts me in my place when I need to be put in my place, which was often... And I was like, what is the deal? I'm getting soaked. Can they not close the door? And he said, Ryan, these people have nothing. They're afraid if they close the door too hard and they break it, they're going to have to fix it and they can't afford to do that. They're living in fear. They're not used to seeing people like you being willing to take them around and if they do something wrong, not making them fix it. People who are living in poverty are living under a pervasive fear that captures, and captures their hearts and stifles their imagination, stifles their, their image of who they are in Christ. When we give to the poor, we humble them and honor them and honor the Lord by saying, you are worthy of my investment because God loves you and so do I. We're going to do this life together. And along the way, I'm going to learn far more than you're going to learn from me.
It's my joy to partner with you. Proverbs teaches us that if we don't see poor people in our lives, we aren't off the hook. Um, This is also related to humility. Because sometimes I'm asked, Ryan, I don't know anyone who is poor. It's a very honest question. Or those I do know, I've tried to help and I don't know what to do anymore. Here's what Proverbs 28, 27 says to you. Proverbs 28, 27, this is what it says. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. There are poor people everywhere around you. Who are the poor? Ask the Lord. It's an unsatisfactory answer, but they are your neighbors. They're here, near and far. If you don't see them, you're not off the hook. They are there. If we can help the poor and we don't, Proverbs teaches us that we perpetuate their pain and enlarge our own warped sense of importance. We perpetuate their pain and enlarge our warped sense of self-importance. This is what 25.14 says. This is a great image. I hope you don't forget this one. 25.14 says, like clouds and wind without rain. Think about that. Remember last week when it was so hot, it was 110 degrees real feel, and they kept telling us that it was going to rain. The thunderstorms were coming, and we were all hoping it was going to cool us off, and it never came, and it was so hot. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. When we see the poor and we withhold from them, we are like clouds and wind without rain. We can bring hope and relief and honor and value and joy and affirmation. And if we see them and do nothing, we perpetuate their pain and enlarge our own warped sense of self-importance. Let's talk about something less painful. Giving to the poor is a heavy thing. Let's talk about how we earn our money because, you know, that's just better. Uh, Not just better. It's easier to talk about because everyone loves talking about how much money they make. Um, Earning money, number four. Earn money honestly and justly. Money dishonestly and unjustly gain may all the world and gain us temporary power, but is a poor sacrifice to God and demonstrates a false faith. This is what Proverbs 28.3 says. Proverbs 28.3, a poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. See that poor to the poor. It wasn't just rich and the poor. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. We have to to earn our money honestly and justly. Or we're all flash and no substance. No good fruit will come. God cares for your heart and doesn't love you more if your bank account amount is greater. Despite what the world tells you, your value in Christ is secure. He doesn't love you more 
because you have a bigger bank account. If you think he does, I will give you 100 more people that have more money than you. Your value in the Lord is secure. Proverbs 15.6 says it this way. Proverbs 15.6. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Earn your money honestly and justly. You can't have godly power, friends, without godly character. You can't have godly wealth without godly character. It's just not possible. Not earning your money honestly and justly says, I trust God as my Lord and my Savior, except for when it counts with my money. We too often ask, but God, does, doesn't God want me to be happy? He'll forgive me because like this money that I made by treating my employees poorly or, you know, stealing cable or whatever it is. Saving money or earning money unjustly is not good fruit before the throne of God. God wants us to be, to be faithful. Our lives are about his glory, not ours. He's the author and perfecter of our faith and it is his story that we are to tell with our lives. Anything less is taking the grace of God in vain. If we claim Jesus as our Lord for eternity, how we earn our money declares how we view God as our Lord here on earth. And last, the last of the five is this. Finally, we want to steward our money wisely. We want to steward our money wisely. We want to steward our money wisely as a reflection of the hope that we have in Jesus. How do we steward our money wisely? Well, I'd encourage you to ask this question. How do I best influence the kingdom of God? Not compare myself to other Americans. That's the easy game. That's the trap. How do I best steward my money to impact the kingdom of God? We all have different seasons of life where sometimes we make more, we earn more, we have more to give and we have less to give. How can I give God my best in terms of stewardship? Then do so. When you wait before the Lord and say, God, I want to give you my best. You're worthy of my everything. What should I do? Listen for the Lord, hear his instruction, and then do it. But how do I do this? We're not going to show it on the screen, but you can write it down. 23, 6 through 7, teaches us to have wise counsel around us, to help us make wise stewardship decisions. 23, verse 6 through 7. Or 25, 11 through 12. I know I'm drinking out of a fire hose today, but God's word says a lot about money. 25, 11 through 12 teaches us that a wise rebuking is a gift like gold. Do you have people in your life who are giving you occasional wise rebukes about how you steward your money? I bet a lot of you don't. I didn't. Life groups are a great place to start. Share your budgets with one another. Anytime you have a major decision, major decision financially, share that with your life group. Start there. 
And if that's too intimidating, we do gender nights in our life group. And once a month, the guys go out with the guys and the gals go out with the gals. And this last month, I was talking about some major financial decisions my wife and I were making. And I got wise rebuke, wise counsel about how I was thinking about that. Friends, God's wisdom is about, about money applies to all people everywhere. We should pursue wisdom and understanding about money and wealth. We should give to the poor. We should earn our money honestly and justly. And we should steward it wisely. But this is really, really hard. There's this righteous tension. This is really, really hard to do. 2 Corinthians 6 says it this way. It starts in verse 1. It's not on the screen, but check this out. You can read it later. 2 Corinthians 6.1, it says this. Working together with him, being God, then we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, our salvation in Christ because of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins costs him dearly. And that should matter to us. We don't just thank the Lord for eternity and live unthankful lives. Flippantly saying how much the grace of God means to us and then living our lives and how we treat our money as if it didn't matter at all. How do we know, Ryan, how do we know? This is the crux of the matter. This is the question I get most often. How do I know that I'm not taking the grace of God in vain? How do we know if we're doing enough? How do we know if I can always imagine doing more and I can certainly make far more excuses for doing less? Proverbs teaches us about money, that we should live in this tension as we're all poor and we're all wealthy in the eyes of someone. But where do you fall when you sit before God? Live in that tension. 2 Corinthians 6.10 talks about money. And it says, this is, this is how it explains the tension. 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. C.S. Lewis says this, and it summarizes all that I've said so far much better than I, as C.S. Lewis often does. It says, there ought to be things that we'd like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. There ought to be things that we'd like to do that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. Do we have a healthy tension where we're not comparing ourselves to the people of similar income, but we're standing before God and saying, this all belongs to you. May we live in this tension fully declaring that the Lord, that our Lord is the author and perfecter of our faith, that more of God's wisdom and understanding is greater than money and wealth, that in giving to the poor and earning our money honestly and justly and being wise stewards, we declare to the world that our Lord is our God in eternity and on earth. Our lives are about seeking the glory of God, not our own. And in doing so, May all who see and meet us and watch us and how we watch our money see and meet our God. Let's pray.